0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where my colleague Daniel Larrison and I try to push back on the seemingly immovable status quo foreign policy in D.C., one mistake, one lie, one contradiction, one hypocrisy at a time. For my part, I currently serve as the editorial director at Responsible Statecraft. Daniel Larrison publishes across numerous platforms, but his best work today lives on his Substack newsletter, Unomia, so please check it out and even better, subscribe You won't regret it. In our next segment, we'll be talking with Yale professor Sam Moyne, who is the author of the new book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. But first, let's talk a little bit about the federal trough. This month, Congress has been debating the massive National Defense Authorization Act, otherwise known as the NDAA, which sets policy and spending levels for the Department of Defense. On the 23rd, the House passed a package authorizing $768 billion for national defense programs, including $740 billion for the pentagon base budget, an increase of $25 billion from what Biden requested, and $28 billion for nuclear weapons programs under the Energy Department. Efforts by progressive Democrats to trim this budget of the extra $25 billion, which Hawks billed as so necessary for confronting terrorists in the Middle East and the Chinese and the South China Sea was thwarted, as was even more long shots attempts to cut 10% from the top line. Andrew Lautz at the National Taxpayers Union says this 5% hike and if this is sustained over the next five years, could end up costing taxpayers $1.2 trillion. Just as importantly, though, is the question, do we actually need it? The base budget was already funding billions in new ships, aircraft, combat systems, IT, cybersecurity programs, modernizing the nuclear triad, and over $5 billion for Biden's China Deterrence Initiative. The extra $25 billion will add ships, more aircraft, more stuff in the off-budget wish list by each of the services and the combatant commands. In the end, there was strong bipartisan agreement the military should get all of this money. Dan, it seems like the reformers, no matter how hard they try, can't seem to win on this issue, even when we're drawing down from a war. If they can't cut the budget now, when will they ever be able to cut the budget?
1: Well, and we and we see this has been the trend uh, going now for for a couple of decades. Uh, the, in real terms, the the spending on the military budget is higher than it was at the height of the Reagan buildup in the Cold War, and and there there are reasons for that that aren't simply uh, being spendthrift, uh, but it it is an example of how there there is no discipline and then really no sense of strategy uh, connected to this spending. Uh, if we were simply focused on, let's say, China as the, the primary uh, adversary, uh, you still wouldn't need a budget this large, and you wouldn't need to be building up all of the services at the same time. Uh, it, it's essentially a free-for-all where every service gets uh, to, to ask for pretty much whatever it wants, knowing that Congress is going to throw even more money at them than they ask for, because there's... are these perverse incentives uh, that say that members of congress uh, ought to to shower the pentagon with with funding uh, in the hopes that some of that will get back to their districts and their states uh, and they can then claim that they're responsible for for boosting uh, job growth and so on Uh, we we don't need to be spending all this money uh, for for one thing the the threats to the us are actually not very great Uh, we don't face very many uh, grave threats. Uh, most of the threats that are out there are manageable or minor. Uh, obviously, the, the threat of terrorism is quite small compared to what our expenditure on it. Uh, the the supposed threat from Russia is quite limited, and the Russian military budget is a fraction of ours. Uh, and even the Chinese military budget, which has been expanding, uh, is still considerably smaller than ours. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, the downside of our approach in Asia is that, we're trying to play on their turf, so to speak. We're trying to, uh, to dominate their part of the world where they have all of their assets, uh, and we're also trying to police the rest of the planet at the same time. So if we want to get the budget under control, we also need to get our strategy under control and, and stop trying to do everything uh, and stop spending money on everything and, and, and learn some focus.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the the problem with this whole budgetary process and the way it's reported in the media and the way it takes place in Washington is that at some point people's eyes just glaze over because it's so complicated and Byzantine and it seems so uh, beyond reform or repair that American people just say, you know what, I, I I just can't. This is just something that I'm this this is something that happens every year. And what, what does it mean to me? And this is the swamp, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And I get that because I try to figure this out. I try to cover it and I try to focus my eyes on numbers and budgets and programs and all the little tricks that these um, that the armed forces do to get what they want. And I start, you know, getting overwhelmed. And, you know, it's interesting because I I just had a story come in for me uh, for Responsible Statecraft from Andrew Lautz, who I mentioned in the opening, uh, the National Taxpayers Union. And, you know, he was writing about the fact that the Budget Control Act is expiring, The, the, the caps that were supposed to be put on the defense budget since 2011 are expiring this year. And he mentions that despite these caps that were supposed to to, uh, be in place for spending limits each year, uh, the the military was able to get some, I think he writes $2.7 trillion beyond those caps through within the last 10 years. Um, How is that? You know, they they found creative ways uh, to you know, find, you know, to, 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 to stash money and find, you know, spending uh, or find little funds that they could, you know, basically take care of programs that hadn't been authorized in the NDAA. And this went on for years. And so it's really hard to get a grip on, on how much we're spending, what we're spending on. We have a Pentagon that hasn't um, passed an audit ever, um I, they partially passed it a few years ago. Um, they They don't have a working inspector general at, at the B, at the Pentagon. So it's hard for American people to really get a, to get their arms around this problem and to effectively advocate. Meanwhile, you have members of Congress who sit there, you know, in these hearings for the NDAA and say that if we don't give them an extra twenty five billion dollars, we are going to um, succumb you know, uh, to, the, to the Chinese uh, you know, hegemon. <laughs> and all our allies are gonna be taken over in the South China Sea and terrorists are gonna be rampaging across the Middle East Afghanistan. Uh, well, and Afghanistan.
1: Well, and one of the things that we see with the, the demands for more spending on our side is that there, there's no similar demand for higher spending from any allies or clients. And and, in, and and even though you are seeing slight increases in some places in, in Taiwan, I think their military spending is going up a little bit. Uh, they're, they're simply not spending at the levels that you would expect them to spend at if they were actually in mortal fear of being attacked and being conquered. Uh, so we're we're being asked to foot the bill for the defense of all these places, or at least you know possibly the defense of all these places. Uh, Taiwan is a is a of course a murkier question, but. we're we're being asked to spend on all of these countries uh, that won't spend for themselves because they don't actually perceive the threat that we claim is so dire. And, and that's, that's sort of the first giveaway that this is a a bit of a a scam. Um, And then you were talking about uh, the, you know, the slush funds that they had going for the last decade with the overseas contingency operations fund uh, where they would, they basically put everything in there that they couldn't get through the regular base budget. uh, And so the, the total military spending remained the same or continued to increase, uh, far beyond the levels that were envisioned by the budget control act. Uh, but they, they simply created this workaround. And now that the, the limits are expiring, they're getting rid of that slush fund and they're just piling everything back into the main budget. And so it's, it's, it's frustrating, uh, because it seems like wherever you try to impose a limit, uh, they'll, they'll try to come up with a, a workaround uh, to keep the money flowing. And so you, you really, what you have to have uh, in addition to some kind of fiscal discipline from Congress, which is unlikely, uh, you need to have a president who is actively demanding that they reduce the size of the military budget. But you know, tr- trusting the executive to shrink the military is also not uh, likely to work on its own. It's something we have to demand from them and, and unfortunately, that's, that's the thing we don't really have is a, a significant uh, popular movement demanding uh, a reduction in this spending because people have been uh, frightened to death by all of these minor or non-existent threats for the last 20 years. Uh, you know, so much so that they, they think that Iran has nukes when they don't. Uh, they, they think that we're going to be attacked by North Korea when we're not and, and on and on.
0: Right. And they also think that we have a, that the Chinese have a comparable military.
1: I mean, well, and yeah, we have, we have people saying now that if we don't watch out, uh, they're suddenly going to have a larger nuclear arsenal than we will, which is not only far from true. I don't think it's even physically possible given their limits on their fissile material uh, in terms of the, the amount that they have available to them. So it's, you have lots and lots of fear mongering combined with this log rolling that we see in Congress, and so it's uh, it's created uh, the, the the bloated budgets that we've seen year after year.
0: Yeah, I like that that visual log rolling. It is so true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I um I you know I, I misspoke earlier. We were talking about those the Budget Control Act and the caps and the money that had sort of uh, found its way. Into uh, the defense coffers anyway, and I mentioned it was two point trillion dollars over the last ten years. That is the the total amount of the government uh, was able to you know the, the, the government spending beyond the, the the caps. Half of that, or nearly half of it, one point three trillion went to defense programs. So 1.3 trillion above the caps in terms of like military spending, which, oh my goodness, it is so much money. And, um, you know, we have two things going on here. We have the, the Byzantine nature of the process, which clouds everything and makes it impenetrable to understand like how the how the budget works, where all the money is going, uh, it's slushing around, it's it's there's all sorts of subterfuge. And then they and then we get what you mentioned is the fear-mongering. And the the one member of Congress after the other going up and and, and basically scaring people to death. And that's why you have this huge bipartisan consensus be, behind these massive Pentagon uh, spending bills. Uh, we, and I mentioned that there are a number of progressives led by Mark Pocan and, uh, Barbara Lee in the house tried to make a plea to their fellow members and said, listen, we just got out of a war. There's no better time than now to cut the budget back 10%. We were, we'll be going back to, uh, we're going back to levels where we were in wartime uh, the, pen, the, the the budget was already huge. We're not talking about ripping apart um, the spending level. And they couldn't even get that argument across or it got across, but nobody was listening. What they were listening to was the fear mongering. And, that, and that's unfortunate.
1: I think one of the the downsides of the way that Biden was selling the end of the war in Afghanistan is that he was saying, now we can focus our resources on China, and hawks in Congress are only too happy to take him up on that. And so you have Marco Rubio out there saying, let's spend the peace dividend by spending more on anti-Chinese programs and measures. Uh, And so there will be no peace dividend. (laughs) You you simply uh, invested in a new kind of militarism to replace the old. And that's uh, unfortunately where, where we seem to be going uh, as China readily fits into the, as the new adversary of choice uh, for the next what, 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah, I find it, it very, um, I find it despicable that Marco Rubio and others have been using uh, this quote unquote peace dividend to, to focus on great power competition with China. And, um, it's as though they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to appeal to the, uh, the Trump populists who have been advocating for ending forever wars. They agreed with the withdrawal for Afghanistan, but then they're also appealing, uh, to, um, this, this anti-China, uh, nationalistic, uh, sentiment. And, uh, and then fueling this idea that if we don't if we don't become more aggressive, and we don't put more of our U.S. military assets in the region, that somehow that we will be succumbing to China. And I know where that's coming from because having worked at the American Conservative, which was a mag is is a magazine that was started by Pat Buchanan, who has always been skeptical of our China policies, but he, it, but mostly. If not all, were economic based criticisms. Right. He he criticized the the neoliberal um, economic policies that shipped all of our jobs overseas. Many of them going to China and the influence that China has had on world markets. He, they're taking um, those concerns, those criticisms, and have and have shifted. To us, to um, a security concern and a hegemonic concern, and I don't, I don't really, I couldn't tell you how Pat Buchanan feels about that, but I sense that that's how a lot of these conservatives have been able to retool um, the the the, the Trump MAGA um, fervor um, away from you know calling for the end of endless wars getting out of the middle east and afghanistan and shifting it to a more aggressive posture on china
1: right and one one thing with uh, any any kind of nationalism but especially a sort of trumpian nationalism is that you have to have an enemy to focus that uh resentment and anger towards and and china has uh served that purpose uh, very well uh over the last few years uh, of course, because the, the Chinese government has done many things that are objectionable and, and do uh, legitimately anger people in this country, uh, and and they're also uh, a very useful boogeyman because well, I mean, look, they're they're they still have a communist party, mm-hmm. uh, they they're opposed to all of our allies and so on, and so it becomes extremely easy to to turn them into uh, the villains of the peace and and to to channel all of that anger uh, at them, mm-hmm. even though doing so pretty much guarantees. Mm-hmm. A much worse age of militarism and military buildup for this country uh, than we've seen over the last 30 years, uh, which has already been quite bad. Our guest today is Samuel Boyne. He is Henry R. Luce, Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He is also a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and he's the author of The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough Human Rights in an Unequal World, and most recently, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: It's our pleasure, it's great to have you here. Uh, as you argue in the book, I, I enjoyed the book very much. Um, as you argue in the book, the problem with humanizing warfare is not only that it makes it harder to end war and to avoid new ones, but that it potentially paves the way for more global policing and domination. You write, a future of bloodless global discipline is a chilling thing, just as the alternative to killer police ought not to be the control and domination that leaves its victims alive and unscathed. Can you say a bit more about that and and what you're thinking uh, about in those terms?
2: Sure, so you know, I I was inspired to write this book by our former president, Barack Obama, um, and the way he pivoted from the first to the second form of the war on terror, the first, uh, involved, you know, interventions in two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, heavy footprint uh, intervention and, and occupation with lots of troops, um, and taking the gloves off in in the rhetoric of the time. Uh, Obama recognized that Bush's popularity tanked because um, the, that form of the war on terror had high costs for American soldiers with body bags coming home. Um, And it, you know, raised the hackles of some Americans who were appalled by the brutality of that first form of the war on terror, which is the way many tried to stigmatize it. In the absence of kind of building a big enough anti-war coalition, um, you know, the, the way the war on terror was fought became the focus of debate. And Obama, you know, in a genius move, pivoted to a a new form, a second form of the war on terror, which um, was a light footprint or no footprint using special forces, armed drone, standoff missiles, and so forth. And once it became clear that that's what he was doing, kind of advertising it as a more humane enterprise under legal standards. And that's what I wanted to figure out, you know, like the the ethics of it you know where it came from and what its future is and um so i i kind of did a long history and tried to establish that it's novel um even if it was foreseen by certain worry warts long ago and then i i do you know wonder what will happen if we keep the pressure off our presidents um and let them go to war you know, or, or stay on a permanent war footing and compensate by claiming that what they're doing is humane. Um, and, you know, there, there is this chilling future that if we let things go that way, um, especially with the emergence of so-called autonomous weapons systems, which Israel has now pioneeringly used in actual conflict, that's, you know, a form of technology that is unmanned and unpiloted, programmed potentially programmed to operate humanely. And it's really like, to me, though, we're in the earliest days, the recipe for the conversion of American empire to policing, where where we think we need it. But of course, American police on our, you know, in our homeland isn't operating everywhere. It operates place places not and not others. And the question is, do we want that future? Do we want it on condition that it it's not as cruel and vicious in in the physical depredations it inflicts. Uh, and I, I basically wonder if it, there, there's a better option, namely, you know, less policing, not just less cruel policing. And that's true at home. But, you know, since this book is about war, I think abroad, you know, in fairness, we're in the early days of this. And I'm not saying, you know, that kind of bloodless, discipline and your quote will will materialize anytime soon or without kind of lots of obstacles, but it could. And it seems like we may look back at this period of Obama's presidency and sense as a kind of very big transformation in what we think war is, um, as it becomes less characterized by death and injury and more characterized by this kind of humane surveillance. And so I think we should stop it, nip it in the bud, but you know, a lot of folks, my fellow citizens, especially, disagree so far.
1: Right, and um, one of the things that I, I know I've seen from some critics, and I, I think these these are pretty bad faith criticisms, is that they're they're suggesting that you're somehow arguing for loosening restrictions in warfare or something in order to make warfare less popular, and that's that's exactly not what you're saying. Um, you, you you do acknowledge many times in the book that reducing harm to civilians is important, uh, and that. This is that the reform work uh, is always good, uh, but that it's not enough, right? And so, what you're looking for is rejecting illegal warfare on right. top of of these reforms, right? Right. I
2: mean, if if you operate pessimistically with the idea that the sole alternative to more humane war is 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 less humane war, well, then you you choose more humane war every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But I don't think that's the menu we've got. Um, and, you know, all I want to suggest is that when we nobly take steps to make war more humane, we incur a risk to control and manage. And that's a risk that it's then easier to keep wars going. And so the point would be to fold in concerns about brutality into a larger concern about the incidence and continuation of war. And I try to show that, you know, in the Vietnam era, that's the way the anti-war movement worked, you know, building in concern for atrocity to the project of stigmatizing what it felt was a misbegotten war with costs that were too high for all concern. And, you know, I think the tragedy is that for various reasons we can get into, that didn't happen, hasn't happened yet in the course of the war on terror. And indeed, the concern about brutality ended up editing out um, brutality from a war that didn't stop that wasn't brought to a close, I say, you know, that we, we successfully edited the bug out of the program of endless war. And so can we avoid that outcome? I think so. But surely the alternative is not just kind of going back to brutality or just accepting the, you know, s- still very high levels of brutality that mark any anything we call war.
0: So, Sam, I want to go back to a point that that Daniel made, that that some of the slings and the arrows that you've been taking, and it it seems like they're coming from the sort of liberal left flank, the anti-war flank. And I was Googling around, uh, I don't know why, for another reason, believe it or not, and I ended up on Consortium News, and here's this piece by Marjorie Cohn. Um, uh, talking about your quote, vicious and unprincipled attack on Michael Ratner, one of the finest human rights attorneys of our time, in which she accuses you of singling Ratner out as a whipping boy to support your own bizarre theory that punishing war crimes prolongs war by making it more palatable. So I, you know, I went through, I hadn't read um, the uh, New York Review of Books review or piece that you had written just to kind of get a sense of what she was saying. And basically she was, was was, uh, or you were particularly focused on his work with uh, the war crimes uh, tribunal, the military commissions in, at Guantanamo Bay and how Ratner was, um, you know, had singularly had brought about uh, the reforms there, uh, the constitutional reforms there, Uh, during the Bush administration, in which there was no habeas corpus and no constitutional uh, rights for detainees. And that had been changed, I believe, in in 2006, per the Supreme Court. And your view was that it was almost as it was caught, like the the, the military commissions was codified and prolonging uh, the Gitmo, the Guantanamo Bay uh, legal system. And this was part and parcel of your argument that by uh, codifying or making these uh, this war, and in this case, the commissions more uh, legal, uh, that it was prolonging what should have never been in the first place. And I was wondering if you could address particularly the Gitmo example here and, and maybe Marjorie's slam on you uh, for calling sure. it out?
2: Sure, so um, it's a great question. And, you know, it's worth, I think, abating some of the confusion, um, part, part of which is kind of my own doing. I wanted to treat Michael Ratner, who did some things rather than others, you know, took on some cases rather than others, as symbolic of a much larger mode of, of response to the war on terror. And I thought it was an ironic uh, thing that, uh, as I detail in a way very lovingly, he was an inveterate critic of war itself, both before 9-11 and after. But the, the logic of the situation um, in those early years of the war on terror forced him in to a certain emphasis in his activism and especially his lit- in his litigation. Now, it's absolutely true that he focused on in, in a case called Russell v. Bush on Guantanamo um, and, and eventually getting habeas rights for those interned there. But I don't think we can ignore that that was part of a, a kind of larger campaign to elicit both from the Supreme Court and from the legislature, thanks to people like John McCain, um, a, a, a more humane set of limits not just at Guantanamo, not just on the legal rights within our judicial system that, you know, are in the constitution, but also, you know, how the war on terror is going to be approached. And it's here that I think I really differ from the, you know, the critic you cite and from Michael Ratner and others, which is that in part it part of my argument, which you know goes back to my answer to Daniel, is that law can limit it can also legitimate uh, and that the the way that the war on terror was attacked in its early years and uh, delegitimated went to it, the, its prosecution, not its existence. Um, and that set up an incredible opportunity for Barack Obama to shift from the first form of the war on terror to the second. So, I don't think there's really any difference between me and and some of those who have attacked me on my portrayal of Michael Ratner, except on one very important issue, which is that when you're a hero, even in a a situation where you have no choice about your priorities, do you set up risks for the future? Um, Even if we go on to blame Barack Obama and maybe, you know, a larger set of individuals, for taking advantage of a situation, not to kind of constrain the the war in the way that some activists would have liked, but to set it on a new footing, a more legal footing, a more legitimate footing, because that's what happened. That was the outcome. And so I wanna say that, you know, these are noble figures and I'm, a, I, you know, I, if that didn't come through, I think it's more, it's clearer in the book then I definitely apologize, but I stand by the argument that when we act, we have to take on the kind of perverse outcomes we may help set up and figure out how to control the risks, even of necessary choices, in emphasis that Ratner and so many others, you know, nobly had to accept at a, at a really difficult moment in history.
0: Yeah, and it was a very difficult moment because I, as a reporter, I was covering all of these cases <clears throat> And individually, detainees and their struggles there, as they were fighting for the same constitutional rights as everybody else in the within these courts and within the prison system there. And and it never did I for a second think, well, maybe I shouldn't re- support these reforms because the more I support them, the more I'm legitimizing. Uh, Gitmo and in the, the military commissions, and so I right. think it's it's a little bit unfair uh, of, uh, for Marjorie Cohn and others to act as though you or anybody else who are advocating against this legitimization are somehow advocating for war crimes or right. for for us to have a hands off approach.
2: Of course. And, um, I, I just want people to kind of, you know, I think I'd, I'm not going to succeed with Marjorie Cohn and, and some others, but um, if if you think hard, I mean, first of all, they, they they won and lost in on the core issues they were fighting, because um, it's not like military commissions were ruled out. It's true that they were placed under some constraints. It's not like Guantanamo is closed yet, although um, George Bush reduced uh, you know the numbers there, and Obama st- struggled nobly to reduce them all the way to zero. and Biden's considering whether to whether he can complete the task as he, he did with the Afghan pullout. But I do think we, we have to think very critically about how when you do something noble, there are risks you set up, um, the risks not of delegitimating war, but of allowing others, to claim it's legitimate now because of the difference you made. And so if, if you're not willing as an activist to own that that's a possible consequence, then I, I think that you, you really should be thinking hard about it because, you know, even if it was a necessary choice at the time, we're in position, I think now to actually go further with the constraint of American force, the, the, you know, the Quincy Institute with which we're involved is, is an example of something that obviously didn't exist in the years after 9-11. But if we, if we don't back this restraint agenda, then we're missing an opportunity now. And the question is, is that opportunity gonna be missed? I fear it is.
0: I just had one quick follow up to that. Because it just dawned on me that, you know, for as much as we, you know, some of us, not, not, my, not necessarily myself, uh, would like to look a little bit more, um, uh, you know, um, fondly, or I would say fondly, but generously on Obama's actions. I mean, he really was the only person in, the, in position to shut this thing down. Because me, you, Dan, Marjorie Cohn... We're not really—we're not really in a position to to say, well, we're not going to support constitutional reforms. We want to support tearing, you know, the whole GWAT apart and leaving right. it at the side of the road. We right. wouldn't have that that power, you right. know. Even Congress, to a certain extent. I mean, yeah, they have they had power, but I mean, Obama really did have. He was at a crossroads, I guess you could say.
2: I think he was, and. You know, again, it's it's not just an on-off switch, but it's a continuum because you know, he could have done less than he did. Um and I think what 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 I think you know triggered me to write this book is that he really did reinvent a, a, a war rather than place limits on a war. He accepted and and kind of ran a victory lap with the humane limits that kind of had had ultimately been imposed through the later Bush years and he ordered the, you know, the shredding of John Yu's memos on torture, but not the memos which remain on the books about the use of force, nor did he succeed in getting AUMF reform. He did have a brief moment before the rise of ISIS where he he mused publicly about leaving the war framework behind but far from just letting it endure he expanded the scope of the war and above all its its form with these you know light and no footprint operations which biden has himself promised uh, to retain uh, through the the withdrawal and so i do blame obama and i think he had a choice and i think that was a moment where there, there was an available alternative, unlike in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. It was missed, and I think we're still living with the consequences.
1: Unfortunately, so uh, we were talking a few weeks ago with Spencer Ackerman, and he talks about Obama's legacy in terms of creating what he calls the sustainable war on terror, and I think that, that gets at exactly what you were just saying. Um, and, and with Obama, we see... Um, another thing that you talk about in the book, where you say, we fight war crimes but have forgotten the crime of war. Uh, And and I thought that was, that if there's one sentence in the book that kind of sums up your thesis, I think that that may be it. Um, And you talk a lot about the Iraq war in connection with that. Um, This was an illegal and aggressive war, but it's not usually talked about that way uh, in foreign policy debates in the US or, or even in the West more broadly. Uh, but we committed a crime of aggression, which used to be considered the worst crime that contained all others in it. Uh, and so how can we hold our leaders accountable for this crime if we can't even bring ourselves to acknowledge that it was a crime?
2: It's a great question. You know, I one of my aspirations in the book is not just to tell, let's say, a shorter term story of the way in which events before and after 9-11 set up the the the, the possibility for Obama to Bring humane war online, but also to tell a longer American history in which there there are peace resources, um, and it's it's it's. I think it's really important, you know, not if not in this book, then in general, for us to begin a kind of like memory project of the the priority that restraining war had, because once war starts you You do get brutality along with bad apples and honest mistakes, but you get a lot of legal consequences um not just the death of soldiers uh, and the creation of like you know w- wounded veterans and you know suffering families um, but you get the cost for the state that could have been directed to other things and I think you know those who placed war you know, uppermost in their concerns, not war crimes, understood all of this. And it was just, it just went without saying. And above all, you know, for example, in setting the priorities at the Nuremberg trials, which was an aggression inquiry, in setting the priorities for standing down the Vietnam War, whereas I show in in great maybe, you know, maybe mind-numbing detail, aggression had pride of place for those who were interested in the memory of Nuremberg at that time and in international law in general. And you know, then the great reversal happens where the height of morality is to make war less cruel. But that was a betrayal of a lot of American insight before, not to mention global, global wisdom. And I think we have to claw it back because we've relearned, I think, harshly the lesson that you know when you when you take the focus off war and place it on war crimes you still are you're tolerating a lot of evil that it's more important to control uh, than we may have thought
1: yeah I, I think that's right and one of the other things that we have seen especially over the last 20 years is how uh aggression gets redefined as self-defense or self-defense gets defined so broadly that it includes all kinds of military action that goes way beyond what's actually self-defense. Um, do, do you think that can be reined in in the future or have we as a country become so used to this expansive definition of self-defense that most Americans don't even recognize our aggression when they see it?
2: So I, I think you know it's it's on us um, as Americans and I think our, our main path will probably run um, through Congress and domestic war powers reform rather than kind of getting more kind of consider more love for international law uh, in American political culture, because even before the kind of post 89 post nine 11 period where I show like self-defense, which was supposed to be a constraint on sta- states was reinvented as a permission slip for the United States to do whatever it wanted. Um, there, there was this trouble built into international law, which is that self-defense is an exception to the, you know, cons- to the, you know, ban on the use or threat of of force in the international system. And um, the United States, because of the design of the Security Council, could never be branded an aggressor by the world. So it's not like a new thing that the United States is immune from being deemed an aggressive actor. Um, it is true that we have had these latitudinarian interpretations of self defense to give ourselves. Um, you know, kind of the permission to 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 make war without thinking of ourselves as aggressive. That's why I think we need to check ourselves, and that you know the the agenda that so many have been trying to put forward, you know, against a lot of resistance to get Congress back in the picture. Um, of course, it's their funding every year, year in year out, and it's aware of what it's funding. But we need to insist that it authorize in a kind of ceremonial and formal way these these interventions more than it has. So, you know, clarity about um, what's being authorized, scope conditions, sunset clauses would all like return a, a great a great deal of sanity to uh, where American warmongering, which is out of control and, and really does leave a lot of discretion to the president just to you know, do what he wants uh, and not worry about being branded aggressive.
1: And unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, but uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. And uh, I want to thank you again uh, for coming on the show. Our guest is Samuel Moyne. The book is Humane, uh, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.